I'm Dave Rubin, and joining me today is the host of Tucker Carlson Tonight on Fox News and the author of the new book, The Long Slide, 30 Years in American Journalism, Tucker Carlson. Welcome back to The Rubin Report. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for having me, Dave. Tucker, you are not in your studio. You're not in a suit. You appear to be in some sort of secret bunker area with books <laughs> and pictures. What's going on over there? I'm in, a, I'm in my barn, actually, to be totally honest, which is where I work. I live in a rural area in northern New England, and we have an old barn that we use for everything, basically, to store the boats. And my wife has her Peloton, and we have our studio in it, and, you know, bunk beds for people. And so, yeah, I, I live in my barn. So you're kind of living the dream that you always wanted in a way. I mean, a couple of years ago, I've quoted this many times, uh, quoted you actually many times. You walked into my house, opened the door to my garage, and I don't know if Fox News is gonna want me to say the exact thing you said, but you basically said, holy effing shit, you've done it. Meaning yeah. that I had a studio at home and I was able to run my operation. You, you've kind of expanded into that world while still maintaining the mainstream cred. What, yeah, I mean, I have to say, I've always believed that what matters is how you live. You know, what's your what's your life like? What do you do when you wake up? What time do you wake up? Who do you wake up with? I mean, those are the things that define your life. And so when I saw how you lived, I thought, man, <laughs> this guy is really, I mean, I know people who make a ton of money who don't live anywhere near as well as you do. And I was just so impressed by that. And um, of Confluence of events happened, and I'm, I'm, we actually live in the town that we've been in our whole lives. So it's not we didn't move anywhere weird. We this is where you know we had a house here always growing up. But um, why not just move there? And so we did, and it's been wonderful. Yeah, and you were dealing with some headaches living in some other places because you know obviously the media matters, people, and all the usual trolls and everything. They were sending people to your house and, right. you know, going, at, I mean, literally like going after your wife and kids and all that. I know it's not fun to talk about that, but can you just talk about it a little bit, just sort of relative to, you're just trying to do what you think is right as a, as a journalist and as a personality and then how it affects the, the life and the people around you. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just sad to see it happen. I moved to Washington as a kid. My dad worked for the federal government and um, on the Cold War and doing pretty honorable things, I would say. I, I think that anyway. And um, so I've lived in Washington essentially my whole adult life, I mean, since high school. And it's a bipartisan town. I mean, by definition, both parties are represented. Both parties live there. And as a result, there's been this permanent truce effectively for decades where you can live next to people you disagree with, but you don't talk about it at dinner parties. You can be friends anyway. And I love that environment. A lot of my friends had politics different from mine. And then... In 2016, Trump was such a threat. They were so worried. Not that Trump would actually do anything, and he, and he really didn't, as, as, we, as, as we know. But he said stuff, and he said obvious stuff. And they were so terrified that Trump was going to point out some really obvious things about the way things actually work that they were completely threatened by him. I mean, really threatened by him. It was like a, a foreign power occupying the city and the hatred, the bitterness. And I just kind of agreed with a lot of Trump's, I don't know, ideas may be a little strong, but themes, <laughs> you know, like when you run the government, you should always ask yourself, is this helping the people who live here, who voted for me, who pay for all of this, whose country it is? I really agree with that. I always have. So um, 
that the division in the city between the overwhelming majority of people who saw Trump as this satanic figure and the tiny minority of us who were like, well, yeah, okay, Trump, whatever. It's obvious, you know, he's got all these personal faults, got it. But he's making really good points. Like, what is the point of NATO for, I mean, just pick one of a thousand examples. Why shouldn't we have a border wall? You know, mm -hmm. what about all those people who died of fentanyl? Like, what's the answer? And all of a sudden, it just became impossible to live there. And then, you know, I've never lived by a gate or anything. I, we lived right on the street in the city. All that raised my kids, my four kids there and all of our dogs and all the stuff. And I felt like we were really part of the city. And then next thing you know, people are showing up at the house and you can sort of see where this is going. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so threatening. You know, where does it end? You're going to wind up shooting somebody. And I, I don't want to do that. You know, I hate. But that's that's where it's going, you know, because just living there was so provocative to them. Having them show up and threaten violence against my family was so threatening to me that it just it wasn't going to end well. And I just thought and our fourth child went off to boarding school and we didn't have any kids at home. And so we're like, well, wait, you know, why don't we just move to where we already spend the summer? So we did. Yeah. So do you think that the people that you're talking about there that are sort of the permanent DC class and, and the swamp as Trump would call them. Do you think it's a conscious decision that they're always existing to keep themselves in that power? Or is it just that you just get there and then before you know it, you're just in this thing and, and you like what's happening so you just stay in that thing. So that's why he was the threat to it and I would argue that in a weird way you, now that Trump has stepped away, a lot of the hatred that was just always directed towards Trump is now directed more towards you because you're carrying the torch for some of those ideas. Yeah, I mean, I'm not totally aware of that. I, I have a kind of peripheral sense that I'm disliked by some people, but you know, I don't, I don't have a television. I don't, I don't go on the internet. I don't use social media. I'm pretty, I'm pretty insulated from that stuff because Do why you, would you I let literally, you literally don't, I know you don't check Twitter, but you literally don't have a television. Oh no, I've never had a, I've never had a TV. No, wow. no, no, I just didn't, you know, I didn't grow up like that. And my dad worked in TV when I was a kid and he was, he was pretty pro reading. I would say he was a militant reading person. So yeah, we had a lot of enforced reading in our house. And wow. so I, yeah, that's how I grew up. But, um, yeah, but mostly, you know, I, I have a very close circle of friends and I have a big family and I'm really close to my wife and my producers who I absolutely love my executive producer. I'm really close to him. So I have a lot of people around me who will tell me the truth and do, um, if they think I'm being a douche or I'm crossing some line or whatever, they'll just say it. I mean, they're not afraid. They're not afraid of me at all. So unfortunately, um, so I, <laughs> I feel like I've got a pretty good series of backstops against going totally crazy. And so, and, and I really care about their opinion because these are people I love and respect. And so my view has always been my whole life you know, I had a weird childhood, which kind of changed my view on this. But but fundamentally, it was you should only care about the opinions of people who care about you and who have, you know, demonstrated loyalty and wisdom and an ongoing relationship. Why would you ever let strangers have control of your emotional state? Like, that's insane. And, you know, you hear people say that, but I think I'm in the rare category of people who mean it. So I would never go online and like Google myself. Why would I do that? No, you I know, know, like, I, I know you mean it. 
Right, exactly. I, I know you mean it because I think the first time we met in person, I asked you something about the hate and the Twitter mentions and you're like, I, I don't have Twitter. Like it's, you, you know, it's Tucker Carlson on Twitter where you're like, it's not, you know, I'm not the one checking it and tweeting this stuff and that keeps you kind of insulated and safe and sane. It's, yeah, and, and I have a huge number of people I talk to every day. I mean, I spend my whole life talking to people, mostly by text, but hundreds of people. And I try to clear my text every night. It was up till two in the morning in front of the fire where I live, it's cold, um, on September 1st, and uh, with my dogs, you know, and I'm up really late, banging out these texts, taking notes. So I, I, I speak to a ton of people, and not just people in my world, not just famous rich people, but like a lot of random people. A waitress that I had in Big Sur, and I hope she's watching this, I know she's a fan of yours, years ago has, I gave her my text for some reason, and she and her husband are like such thoughtful people, and she has been texting me ever since, and I swear, once a month, two nights ago, I used one of her lines on the air. <laughs> like, at least once a month, I'll like run with a story idea she sends me, so I have a huge number of people that I correspond with, but I don't want to open it up to the mob, I mean, I because then I can't think clearly, and my whole yeah. job is... You know, and I don't always pull it off, but I really try to think clearly, like, what is going on here? You know, ascend a little bit, get higher, look down. What are the outlines of this? And being involved in this, fuck you, fuck you too, you know, whoa. <laughs> I don't like noise in my personal life. I like quiet and I don't like noise in my work or intellectual life. You know, I like to, I like to think, I like nature, you know, I like, uh, I like hunting and fishing. I like to be outside. I don't want to sit in a room and read other people's hysteria. I don't think there's any upside to that at all. Trust me, man, as a guy that just spent 30 days in a rainforest, basically, I completely feel that. And I've realized that my, my relationship with social media has to be a little bit different. And one of the last things that I remember before leaving in July was that you sort of got accosted while you were going fishing, basically, yeah. by, this, by some guy. And what was so interesting about it, and I say this about everything these days, it's not the incident itself. It's not the incident. It's the way the media reacts to the incident. So yeah. this guy's kind of getting in your face, and the way the whole media was like, yeah, yeah, well, Tucker's mean, so everyone should get in his face and be more mean. And, and it's like, man, that will lead us all to a very dark place. Well, someone's gonna get shot, I mean, it's, uh, I'm serious. I mean, like, where do you think that ends? You, yeah. you uh, physically confront people because you don't like their opinions about politics in front of their children. I mean, one of my kids was there. I was in a fly shop that I've gone to for you know many many years, in a town that I've gone to for many years and that I really love. And I, it, gosh, it felt. I mean, this is so whiny, and I, I try never to whine, in public or private. But it, oh wow, it really felt like a violation. And I thought, well, I, you know, I'm never going here again which was sad, but then, you know, there are other places to go, I guess. Um, I live in a really beautiful place with just, I mean, untold miles of empty rivers and streams and lakes. And like, why am I in Montana anyway? Um, I'll stay in Maine, you know, but, but anyway, it just made me sad. And, but I also think it's very unwise to do that. I, I lived yeah. in DC for 35 years. I would see people all the time. I, I disagreed with, you know, I, I've had dinner with Nancy Pelosi. I, Stood next to Barney Frank. I remember it at an event. I, I could, you know, that was my whole life. Yeah. And the idea of screaming at someone because that person disagrees with you was like insane. And this is what happens when you have a secular society at scale, which has never happened in human history. There's always a, there's always a religion because people have a need for meaning. You take that away, and people just replace it with political ideology, and that's what it's really about. Like the guy screaming at me felt that I was an apostate, you know, I was mm -hmm. attacking the one true faith or something. That's not how I see it.
but it's how a lot of people do see it. And I, and I think that we should be aware that the end point of this is violence. Like that's where it's going. You know what I mean? And I hate that. I hate violence. I've seen it a lot, actually. I'm totally opposed to it. But the way that, that the things have been set up, the way we communicate, the end point is violence. And I just, I say that all the time on the air because I think people should know that. Let's pull back a little bit. Yeah, which is so interesting because then the way they'll frame it is that you're throwing these firebombs and it's actually the reverse. It's, it's a warning. But to your point on the, on the secularism part, do you see where we're at right now as just sort of the end of a purely sort of secular America that at the, yeah. end, of a, at the end of just a secular America, two plus two now equals five, boys right. or girls, we don't know which way is up, our history is no longer our history, that sort of without some sort of undergirding of religion or some, some subset of belief that this is what you get. And, and I really fear this because as you know, as someone that considered myself liberal my whole life, I, I wanted that thing to work, but I have come to the uncomfortable truth that it cannot work. It simply cannot work when well, it's purely I mean, secular. You know, you're always gonna have a religion and you know, you, you can say, well, the crucifixion is kind of a ridiculous story. The Talmud is sort of absurd. Okay, but compared to what? You know what I mean? Right, what do you compared got that's to, better? Yeah. Compared to the idea that men can get pregnant or two plus two equals five, like it's, you know, you're you're trading one superstition for another and that's just the state of man. Like we're always gonna have a belief in the transcendent because we're wired that way. And, but so you need to think carefully about what God you worship, what, you know, what religion you sign up for here. And I think we, but we should be honest about it. I mean. The political discourse that I just described and that you live in the middle of every single day is not about convincing people. It's not rational people bringing, you know, a set of facts to the conversation to try to persuade the other side to join them. Of course not. It's a religious war. That's exactly what it is. So we should just we should name it. This is a cult. The mask stuff. You know, I, I, I won't be boring about it. But in one sentence, like we spent a year. First of all, I was really worried about COVID at the beginning. I think we we're the first show on cable TV to note that COVID existed because we're you know, interested in the rest of the world. Saw this in central China. What is this? I, I thought, I believe the numbers. It's going to be you know, three, four, five percent mortality. Really? You know, many millions would die. So it's not a question of not taking COVID seriously. If you take mm -hmm. COVID seriously, you want solutions that are effective. I mean, that's, that's how you give the virus the respect it deserves is by responding to it rationally. And this, the mask stuff in particular, things about vaccines too, but the mask stuff is so totally unmoored from any kind of research data at all. And in fact, there's a lot of countervailing data that shows that it's, it's counterproductive and bad. We keep saying this for like a year. We're like, well, no, there's this new study out of Vietnam, the biggest on masks ever done. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, shut up, mask <laughs> denier. And I finally realized, because I'm, I'm not super smart, that like they don't care with the evidence, there's no interest whatsoever. Masks are good, this is what we know, this is the catechism, and I'm like, okay, this isn't public health, this is theology. So I don't really know what you do with theology, that's why we don't talk about it. Like, when, you know, I'm a wasp, so when I was a kid, it was like, no, you don't talk about religion in, in a public setting because it's, it's too personal, right? Sex, religion, politics, off limits. So I just don't really have the tools to argue with people over religion, because my default setting is, you know, hey, everyone has their beliefs. Like, leave. I'm very liberal that way. 
the problem is theirs is an evangelical religion. You know, it's seventh century Islam. It's convert or die. It's really, really aggressive. Whoa. So what do we what do we do with that? I mean, I've spent a lot of time when I was off the grid thinking about just that because I, I'm with you that we sort of are in a cold civil war in that, and I don't want a civil war, obviously, and oh, I don't want violence, gosh. just as you laid out, and I want this thing to work, but it seems to me you have a set of people that I would include people like us in, which is basically live and let live, and we can talk about where the government should be. Right. But then we, but then we have this other set that want everything and they want everything from us and to tell us how to do everything. Though that's not a liberal arguing with a conservative. That's something much more dangerous because they are not going to stop. So so what do we do with that, those of us that want to live freely? You know, I don't I don't know. Um, I've been like you, I haven't I haven't been in a treehouse for a month, I wish. Uh, but I have been brooding about it and um you know, my instinct, is, I think, is the same as everyone else's. You know, let's use the federal system uh, to, you know, create zones of choice where people can decide how they want to live, you know, by moving there. You know, certain states will have these rules. Others will have another set of rules commensurate with the desires of the people they represent. Like that's but will federal. that be enough? Will that be enough as they're always trying to give the federal government more power in the presidency yeah, when so, it's their guy so, more power? So that's the pro that's kind of the problem. Yeah. It's like, that's not their temperament at all. So, you know, I live in a super rural area where it's basically 1985 and people just, they, they don't spend a single second worrying about the sex lives of hipsters in Brooklyn. Like, it's, it's not even a thing. It's like, if they're interested in Brooklyn, they'll go and check it out, but they're not. Their sex lives aren't that great, from what <laughs> I understand. <laughs> well, I know they're all involuntarily <laughs> celibate. That's the other thing. <laughs> like my obsession. No one's having sex. Everyone's talking about sex. No one's doing it, which is like so distressing to me. But anyway, whole separate topic. But here's my point. In Brooklyn, there are people laying awake at night, really yes. agitated on a sincere level, too. They're not. It's not just performative. Worried that there are people in my zip code who are like maintaining these attitudes that are unacceptable and must be stamped out. So it's like it's it's asymmetrical. Like one side is evangelical, wants to convert the other side or kill them. And the other side is like kind of traditionally liberal, like, hey, you do your thing, I'll do mine. That's why I live here. You know, we don't have a police department in my town, obviously. And that's because no one can afford it. Of course, also no dentist because no one can afford it. But it's also because unless you're doing something really outrageous, like mm. there's no need for the police. Like the, the I will say this, I, I live in a state that votes kind of mixed is probably mostly Democrat, actually, but because it's sparsely populated and huge, that there really is this tolerance that I've never seen anywhere else. Like they put up in a small town and anyone who lives in a small town can, I think, confirm this because it's just it's true everywhere. They put up with levels of eccentricity of like truly weird behavior in a way that like liberals used to dream about. I mean, there are people in my town who are doing like totally weird things. And people still see them as people. They're not reduced to their weirdest perversion or something. It's like, no, he's like a, he's a good father, but he also exposes himself when the train goes by. Like, you know what I mean? And, and actually there, there literally was a person like that in my town, for real. And everyone they could probably do something about a guy like that, but I get the broader point. No, no, but you see what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. but people here were so top that you see the whole person. And I feel like yeah. in internet world, it's like, oh, you said something mean about gays 
15 years ago where you were insensitive to black people by current standards, then like it's done, you're it's over, like no more job for you. And I'm not defending being mean to any group. Of course not. I'm just saying that people are super complicated and they have good days and bad days and virtuous qualities and very ugly qualities. And they're all mixed together in people like that's that's who we are. But that's not acknowledged online because people's statements are totally disaggregated from the person. And that's not true in a small town. You have to deal with people like we only have one store. It's a gas station. Everyone uses it every day. So you see people every day. So there are people in there probably vote for candidates I hate or doing weird shit, you know, when the lights are off. But I, I still know who they are. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah, see there's, there's three dimensions there. That's actually yes. a perfect segue. And of course, I do want to I do want to talk about the book, too. So I promise you we'll get there. But that's actually a perfect segue to some of the tech stuff, because I think I think the first time I was on your show, which is a couple of years ago now, and we did it. We did it this way, not in person, uh, but online. I was taking the more libertarian approach on the big tech stuff. I was basically like, and this is probably three years ago, and things have now been exposed, which is why I've changed my opinion a bit. But I was basically like, they're private companies, let them do their thing, we'll build better things and all that. Now, you know I'm building stuff, but at this point, it seems to me, and your argument, I think, was a little more like, oh, well, there are antitrust things, there's something government's gotta do. I don't know exactly what, yeah. but something. I've really come around to that, because to me, at this point, if we don't do anything, then, then we're all anarchists. Like if the government doesn't exist to do something about how they're manipulating us, then what is the purpose at any level? Yes. Um, do you feel like you've been pretty pretty right on it the entire time? And, and where are you now at this point? Because I, I know you don't love the administration. It's like, do you want them to have the power to, to break up these companies? Well, I haven't been right about anything the whole time. I mean, my views are <laughs> constantly in flux. My views are utterly different and, and, you know, I have the misfortune of having been on camera for 25 years. So, like, it's pretty easy to prove that my views today are not what they were. They're not even close. And I'm not ashamed of that in the slightest. I think people who pay attention change their minds when the evidence changes. Our, our conclusions always ought to be evidence-based. And so, I mean, I was a libertarian. I mean, I was a fellow at the Cato yeah. Institute. Yeah. Unpaid. Um it's hard to even believe that, but you know, it's a different country. And I, anyway, so um, my view currently is that democracy is incompatible with this level of concentrated power in the hands of a few people. Like, so the promise of democracy is that everybody has power by virtue of their citizenship. We all have a hand in choosing our rulers. And that's what keeps the society calm because, you know, you don't have to storm the Bastille or hurt anybody because you know in two years or four years or six years you have a chance, a meaningful chance, if you get your neighbors involved, to make a change. If people start to understand or believe that they don't have that power, they go crazy. You know, they become really, really radical. That abets radicalism. And the tech power is so overwhelming. I mean, all information in English flows through one portal, Google, that I mean, Google literally, and I'm not saying this is a partisan at all, just like as somebody cares about democracy, prevented the Trump campaign from raising money with its Gmail lists in the last yeah. weeks of the campaign. I, I don't think that was ever reported. The Trump campaign was so stupid, they never said anything about it. But I, someone told me, and I verified, that's true. So, like, you don't have to believe, you know, nutcake Sidney Powell to think, you know, that the voting machines were rigged or whatever that right there is rigging. That's not a free and fair election. If one side mm -hmm. can't raise money, what? Like that's never happened before. And 
and I'm not even getting into the, you know, the, the rejiggering of search results, which are clearly designed to produce propaganda rather than what they promise, which is to produce the most popular results. No, it, the Tucker, whole they've thing, got a so, word. They made up a word for it. It's unbiasing. That's what they do. They unbias when they rejigger. It's the whole thing. It's yeah. like, it's so beyond. And it's, I mean, first of all, it's driving people crazy. It's making people into like for real conspiracy nuts because yep. there actually are conspiracies that we can prove for the first time in my lifetime, 52 years, A. B, it's making people radical because it has destroyed their belief in the system. And C, it is totally incompatible with the system itself. In, the, in our system, the, the government has to be the most powerful entity in the country. Why? Because it's accountable to voters. So ultimately, people who are born here, who are citizens of this country, are supposed to be able to control it on the big questions. If all of those decisions are made, you know, if Google's more powerful than the federal government, which it is, then, and Google is not an American company, it's owned by shareholders from around the world, the sovereign wealth fund of Malaysia or yeah. whatever, or, or China, then like who's in charge of the country? I mean, it raises like really deep questions like that. So no, you, for our own survival, we have to, we have to break it up. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, who really was always been my favorite president. When I was a kid, I loved Teddy Roosevelt because he was such an extraordinary person. He actually hurt members of my family. Um, you know, Wait, what, do, what do you mean? Well, you know, my mother's family was, had, uh, you know, owned the sugar trust and, um, so he broke that up, you know, it was a, it was a monopoly on sugar and, uh, he, the Havemeyers and he broke it up. And, um, you know, there, even when I was a kid, you know, my great grandmother was like, who, who was from that family was like, Hey, Teddy Roosevelt, bad. <laughs> but I always thought he was a cool guy. And, um, and so I liked him for those reasons. Now, as I age, I realized what a wise man he was. He's just an extraordinary person. He believed in capitalism. He believed in democracy. He was actually deeply conservative. He didn't want radical change. There was massive global technological change on his watch. It was called the Industrial Revolution, and it reached its kind of apex around 1900, 1901, when he became president. And it unleashed all kinds of like super volatile politics. And in fact, it culminated in the Bolshevik Revolution, October 1917, which enslaved half the world for 50 years. So like these technological changes have effects that, you know, are really, really deep. And Roosevelt could see this. It was anarchism, not communism at the time. But the anarchist movement was killing people like all over the country in Chicago, Denver, you know, Butte, Montana, New York City. And Teddy Roosevelt's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to return some of this power, this political power to voters or else the country, the systems will collapse and we're going to get some kind of dictatorship. And he was totally right. And so the trust busting that he engaged in was, in fact, you know, a, a, a last ditch effort to save the systems that he believed in, capitalism and democracy. So, you know, clearly, you know, that's what Trump should have done. You know, he, he wasn't serious enough to do that, unfortunately. And, and there were a lot of other problems. But I don't think he could see. I don't think Trump fully understood this or, you know, I don't know. I'll let historians figure it out, but we kind of missed a chance to make these reforms and, and I'm definitely worried about it. 
definitely yeah, worried. That's the that's the messed up part because it's like I'm with you, and then it's like, oh, do you want to give the Biden administration the chance to do this as if they won't make it worse? By the way, I'm guessing you covered this on your show, but you know they took Teddy Roosevelt's statue down at the Museum of Natural History in New York City because of something he said about Native Americans, and it's like the the planet that these people live on. I, I don't live on that planet. I don't think. I mean, Teddy. It, it, I mean, whatever. I can't even get into. It. I I actually have assigned in my barn, a signed picture from Teddy Roosevelt to my great-grandfather over, over my sink. Wow. I, I really, I really admire it. But you know, look, they don't know anything is the bottom line. Teddy Roosevelt yeah. lived with Indians. Teddy Roosevelt knew more about American Indians than any president in history. He'd literally live with them. Um, you no, know, he wasn't a hater of American. These people never met an American Indian. I mean, the whole thing is they're children. And the thing about children, I've got a ton of them. I can tell you, I was one once is they have this moral certainty that's completely uninformed by experience. They don't know how fucked up they are personally because they've never failed. Yes. So it's very easy for a child to make swift and severe moral judgments about others in the way that when you're 52, it's like a little harder to judge because you know how screwed up you are, right? So this is why the Camer Rouge had 15-year-old soldiers. And th that's the species of what we're seeing. Take down Teddy Roosevelt. He's white. Okay. Teddy Roosevelt was like, in a meaningful way, the most progressive president, like in the hundred year span in which he, yeah. It's so stupid, I can't deal with it. All right, well, all right, we'll move on from that. One more thing and then, and then the book. So I just wanna talk about the media landscape in general because one of the things that I'm realizing now that I'm back on the grid is I spend so much of the time on my show just cleaning up lies. Just AOC said this, it's a lie. CNN said this, it's a lie. Kavanaugh, everything they said was a lie. Covington kids, all the stuff that you've covered, obviously. And I'm just a little curious, uh, first off, like how bad you think really like the CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, WAPO machine is on one hand, but on the other hand, just like a little insider stuff on how you guys go about doing your show on a daily basis. Cause I know your producers a little bit and obviously I go on the show and I find that you do the show in a way where it's like, you're almost doing like a, it almost feels more like a book than a TV show where it's like each day you're doing something and then you sort of pick up the next day and pick up the next day and I'm trying to do something similar here so that everything doesn't feel like this disconnected lunacy that, that everyone else is in. I'm just wondering a little bit about like the nuts and bolts about how you guys decide to do what you're gonna do. Well, I'm a writer so that's, that's how I think, you know, in terms of chapters and, you know, serials. This is a story, you know, giving you one installment today, another tomorrow, it's just how my brain works. Um, but as a practical matter, you know, I wake up not too early, I hope. And, uh, with my wife and four dogs, I try and sit outside for a minute, get my head together. And then I write out a memo every morning for the whole staff on what I think the lead ought to be, who we should book. And we've got a whole pipe. We have some unbelievable people who work on the show. Just really, really smart. I mean, really smart. And, um, one of the people I talk to a lot, so, you know, we've had, if I can brag, the same staff for five years. I think we've lost one person, two people, and it's a pretty big staff. Um, and they're just, they're all in, they're so clever, they're so creative, they're so interesting. But one of our, our head tape guys, a guy called Tom Fox, a guy's just a freaking genius. And he really is my window into cable news. Like the poor, the poor guy is very smart, but he watches all this cable news. <laughs> so he's constantly texting. He drinks a lot, I'm guessing. This. What? He drinks a lot, I'm guessing. I, I don't. He seems pretty sober, but I mean, maybe he's on pills. I don't know. But I like, you know, I sit there with my, you know, stupid glasses on and my phone. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, I, I honestly can't believe that. I cannot believe they yeah. say this. 
Um, so basically by like 1130 in the morning, you know, I've sketched out what I think the show should be in my mind. It's always had, because again, I was a reporter and a magazine writer, I think in terms of the lead, you know, what's so my editor used to say to me when I was a kid, get in the lead. They're like, but what's the lead? Like, how do you open it up? You know, what's the, what's the theme? And I try to, as just a, as an exercise that I've always, um, you know, that I learned as a kid and I've, I've always used, sum it up in a sentence. You know, what's it about? You know, our first segment usually goes 20, 25 minutes. What's it about? One sentence. It's not about eight things. It's about one thing. How would you summarize it? And that's a really helpful organizing principle for putting it together. And then, you know, right around five o'clock, I try and take a sauna every day because I think it's really important nice. you know, as Scandinavian. I'm true to my people. And uh, I think about it in the sauna then I go out and I think about it more. And then I sit down around five, have a cup of coffee, and I start writing um, the lead. And so that's basically it. But uh, the media stuff is so shocking to me because I, you know, I worked at CNN for years. And yeah. I hosted a couple shows there, several shows there. And then I, you know, I was the main anchor on MSNBC for four years. I got fired. But, you know, I, I still have a really good friend who will remain nameless, who works there, just a wonderful person, really good guy. And I have a couple of friends at CNN, so not a ton, two. But, uh, but anyway, but I know that world really, really well. And the biggest surprise for me in one sentence is how illiberal they are. I always imagine yes. they're liberal yes. networks. No, 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 I'm liberal, okay? In the sense that like, I believe in the Enlightenment and I, I believe in the Bill of Rights and I think we do have rights. Um, they are not liberals. They are defenders of the powerful, which is the much graver sin. Like you can have silly politics. I get it. I've had silly politics. Maybe I do now. People make mistakes. But defending the billionaire class, blaming everything on like working class white people who are like, you know, by far the most shafted people in America. Look at the suicide rate. Look at the death rate. I mean, it's like it's measurable, but mm -hmm. everything's their fault. It's insane. CNN ran a piece today saying white supremacists are applauding the Taliban. And it's like, okay. Uh, you know, I don't even know what they're talking about. Who are these white? But, but, but leaving that aside, it's like, yeah. what are you really saying? You're saying the real problem with the withdrawal from Afghanistan was not terrible decisions that the Biden administration made or the Pentagon made or that our entire foreign policy establishment bipartisan made for 20 years. No, the real problem is some guy in Alabama uh -huh. who's got unauthorized views. It's like, Maybe you should stop attacking these people because they are the weakest people in our society and you're doing it in order to defend like the shittiest people in our society, but also the richest and the most powerful. You're the Praetorian guard for the most powerful people. Like, how can you live with yourself? I mean that. That is so immoral. You so have what, do you th what do you think the answer to that question is? How do they, when, when you have to cover some idiotic thing that Stelter said or Cuomo, just these, these clown people, when you have to cover it, right? Or Don Lemon, as you call him. Like, what, how do you think they live with themselves at this point when they just lie again and again and we have the internet to expose the lies? If this isn't 20 years ago when you were on CNN yeah. and, we, and we couldn't expose things, we can expose it now and they still do it. Well, it's, I guess I would ask myself like, I mean, I lie. If I'm really cornered or something, I lie. I really try not to. I try never to lie on TV. I, try, I just don't, you know, I don't like lying. I certainly do it, you know, out of weakness or whatever. But to systematically lie like that mm -hmm. without 
asking yourself, like, why am I doing this? So if, if these people ask themselves, why am I doing this? You say, well, because I want to protect the system because I really believe in the system. Okay, who's running the system? You're, you're lying to defend Jeff Bezos? Like you're treating, you're treating Bill Gates like some sort of moral leader? Like are you kidding? Like how dare you do that? How dare you use your power to protect and guard the powerful even as you clamp to, you know, put your boot on the neck of the weakest piece, some, some Catholic school kid from Kentucky. It's like a parody. Are you kidding? He's a child and you're using your power to, to crush him, to wreck his life. Like that, that shocks me. And I have to say, there've been many times in the 25 years I've been in TV where I think, you know, are we using this like very substantial power that we have to put pictures on the screen to hurt weak people. And I have done that inadvertently over the years because I got carried away, but I really try not to. And everyone who works on our show is very aware of like the most basic rule, which is don't piss down. Don't attack people beneath you. If you're going to you know, take a punch, make sure it's upward. Someone who's richer, stronger, more powerful, in charge of more things than you are. Punch up. Like that's just like a life rule, and people who punch down are the are the worst. They should have no power whatsoever, in my opinion. Right, and the irony is they're punching down while pretending they're doing the opposite, <laughs> which is the which is the the grossest part. All right, wait, let's talk about the book because I, I thought it was really interesting. So the book is basically a collection of essays that you've written over a couple decades, over about thirty years, and there's a line right in the front that I thought was great, actually. You say magazine journalism is worth remembering. And that you also then go on to say that, you know, some of the stuff in these pages you got right, some of the stuff you got wrong, some of it could have been written today and would be as important, some of it not. But magazine journalism is worth remembering. I thought that was a key line there because it seems really dead right now. Like when I read oh, any yeah. of the things that 10 years ago were respectable, The Atlantic, just any of the things, like they're just all terrible now. Was there a moment that it shifted? Did it was it as pure as maybe we all thought it will be was at one point or or any of that? Well, the funny thing is is I grew up thinking it was kind of shallow. <laughs> my, my father was a magazine. Oh god, then we're really in trouble now. I know. So my father was a magazine writer actually um when I was born and uh and a successful one and I remember him saying to me in this sort of acid way about a relative of ours who was smart. I said, "Oh, that person's smart." And my father goes, clever. She reads magazines. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Uh, she reads the magazines. lowest of the low. Right, right. Rather than books, like smart people, deep people read books because as my father always told us, there is value in the process of reading a book. You have mm -hmm. to follow a narrative for 300 pages. You have to pay attention to the same storyline as it unfolds and develops. And that's really good training for your brain because you see things longitudinally. And you understand that sometimes the consequences of decisions aren't apparent for a very long time. Like that's, you know, long stories are good. But, you know, I was a magazine writer and a book author, but really a magazine writer. And now that doesn't exist, really. And the reason it doesn't exist is because people can't read for 30 minutes at a time because their brains have been so totally changed by the iPhone that they, they don't even have the ability to do it. It's so amazing to me. So that's part of what's going on is the process of staring at this tiny screen for half your day or more mm -hmm. has changed the way you 
metabolize information. And I remember when Twitter first came out, I was I made fun of it to everybody I knew, like 140 or whoever number of characters. Like that's the space with which we have to express our the deepest truths in American society. Like we're kind of fucked, actually. Yeah. <laughs> if that's, if right. that's you know, yeah, exactly. Like, the medium really matters. Yeah. And now it's like totally normal. You know, the president of the United States was communicating his thoughts on Twitter, and now you know that's the forum. And so it's the medium itself. It's not simply that. The business model went away. And that's all true, of course. It was taken over by the worst people. Yeah, obviously. But it was that the American population became incapable of consuming this media because it was too long. <laughs> oh, that's so awful if you think about it. No, listen, as a guy that just took a month off the phone, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I'm more patient now. The I, yes. Even when I opened up Twitter again, on a quick scroll, I was like, these people are all insane. Even no. even the one, it had nothing to do whether I agreed or disagreed. It was just like this short burst thought war is just making us all crazy. So you, I know, and and you know that the other thing is it's all transmit. That's the problem with it. And for me, that's the thing that I miss most, especially now that I'm a talk show host, like, and I don't do any real reporting um, of the kind that I used to do. Is that all I do is talk. All I do is express my views. And that imperils your soul after a pretty short period of time. Like, it's not good for you. And if you know any talk show hosts, like, they're, they're unbearable. <laughs> you know, I can think of a couple I'm in trying, particular. Man. You just cannot talk to them because they don't listen. They only talk. They're only on transmit, no receive. And the beauty of writing magazine stories was part of the deal. In fact, the essence of the deal was going out and listening to people, shutting up, blending in, watching taking in other people's experiences and then thinking about them. And you have to have that in your life or else you just become, and, and men as they age, by the way, become less capable of listening and more insistent on talking all the time. And I'm already that way anyway. I mean, I just, I can't shut up. So for me, it's really, the job is really dangerous. Like I could wind up and I've told my wife, I, I keep a 38 next to my bed my whole life. I always have a little, you know, two inch barrel oh, special, whatever. I was like, just take it, headshot, end it. If I become like a lot of these people we both know in our business, just end it before I humiliate myself in front of the kids, before they don't want to, you know, be around me anymore because I can't shut up and listen, you know? Um, so that's, I do miss that. I really, really miss that, just going out and listening. So you also lead in the book, you talk a little bit about how the business has changed because it's not just our brains have changed, so that's changed, you know, sort of long-form journalism. Uh, but also the way the, the structures themselves have changed. And you juxtapose the way the, the publishing world treated uh, Josh Hawley's book versus Hunter Biden's book. And I think it's a perfect example of almost everything that's wrong with things right now. Yeah, it was so distressing for me. I mean, I, the book is published by Simon & Schuster. It's the second book in a row I've written for them. It's the last I would ever write for them. I mean, it's such a disgusting company run by disgusting people. But I didn't fully appreciate that. I knew that. I knew that the guy who runs it, this guy John Carp, was dishonest and not super smart. But, you know, that goes for a lot of people in our world. In January— How do you really feel, Tucker? Come on, open up. Oh, he's awful. He's absolutely awful. Um, but I know, you know, whatever you do with awful people. I mean, you know, I, I can be awful. So I get it. I'm not as I'm not that judgy in my personal life. But in January, right after, you know, January 7th, Simon Schuster issues a statement saying we're canceling Josh Hawley's book because 
he is an insurrectionist. So I was like, hmm, Josh Hawley, he seems kind of mild-mannered. So I look into it, and he basically voted to, you know, stop the certification of the vote. Let's figure out if the vote was fair, whatever. Okay, you can agree or disagree. I wasn't calling for anyone to do that in point of fact, just just so you know. Like, I, yeah. I'm not even sure I was for that, but he did it. Democrats did the same thing after the 2016 election, after the 2004 yes. election. Like, I, I'm yes. in Washington. Like, I know this. So I'm like, what made Josh Hawley special? Nothing really. Democrats were mad at Josh Hawley, so Simon and Schuster canceled his book, which had nothing to do with was on a, was on big tech actually. So I was like shocked by this. You know, publishers have to be for free speech. They have to. That's a prerequisite. They're the gatekeepers of our corporate intellectual life, our common intellectual life, and so they have to allow for a, a dialogue, a free exchange of ideas. And maybe on the way out margins, maybe they're not you know reprinting Mein Kampf every year. Get it? But like. The strike zone has to be really, really wide. It really mm -hmm. does, mm -hmm. and and it always has been. And so I was like, I was really shocked by this. So I was I was rabbit hunting in Maine. It was it was like a blizzard, and I'll never forget. It was in my truck driving, and I got so pissed. I called John Carpenter and he answered, and I was like, "Did you just cancel his book because you don't like his vote?" And he's like, "Well," and I said, "You're disgusting. What you did is totally disgusting and wrong, and I feel implicated in it because I owe you this book." And I don't want to write a book for you, but I'm under contract to do it. And you're holding me to the contract. I just want to get out of it. Oh, no, you must write the book. I said, well, if I'm going to write the book, I'm going to open it with the story of what you did. And I want to interview you and that the idiot, you know, editor. And so I did. I interviewed them on Zoom for an hour and I took notes and I printed the conversation in the intro to this book. And they come off as every bit as shallow and dumb and like completely unprincipled as you would expect in your worst nightmare of what New York publishing is like. Like I was really shocked by it and it was just sad. And so at that point it kind of put them in a tough situation. They don't want to print attacks on them, of course, but they figured correctly that if they cancel a book about how they've canceled other people's books, <laughs> probably a PR nightmare. So they had to go through with it. You know, they hate me more than they've ever hated anybody, but obviously I don't care. Um, but I just felt a moral obligation to this because they were sending me money to do this book and I didn't want to be part of it at all. And I really did my best to get out of doing this book. They threatened to sue me. They really got up in my face about it. And so I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to write a book about you. And I did. And I, I, and I dedicated it to John Carp and what a worm he is. And I really mean that. So you juxtapose that with, <laughs> with, with the Hunter stuff. And the Hunter stuff was a little bit different, right? The publishing world and big tech and everybody, a little bit different when it came to Hunter. Hunter Biden's illiterate. Like I know Hunter Biden really well. He was Right, you neighbor. talk about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I always, I mean, I always liked him. And, you know, I used to party way too much and, and I quit 19 years ago. So I'm the last person who's gonna judge an addiction. I still use nicotine product, you know, every waking hour. So you're not going to catch me being like, oh, you're addicted. You know, I, I get it. Yeah. But and and there are a lot of things about Hunter I like and always did like. And I feel so bad for him. He Anyway, it's a very complicated story, but I'm not anti Hunter Biden. But pretending that Hunter Biden can like write a book or has something useful to say or even as an audience is like insulting to me. Mm -hmm. I know the answers to all those questions are, are no. So they paid him millions of dollars. What are they doing? They're paying off the administration, of course, because they see the, the federal government 
as their real audience. They don't mind that they lost all the money on the Hunter Biden book. They made a statement that the people in charge, you know, are on the same team as they are. And I just think that's so dark. It's unbelievable. And, I, and just to be totally clear, there are a lot of payoffs in American life. The society is increasingly corrupt. And of all the people who get payoffs, it doesn't, Hunter Biden's not the worst person. I know I probably, you know, everyone's be like, really, you're defending Hunter Biden? You know, there are a lot of bad people and Hunter Biden's not a bad person. He's just screwed up, you know, whatever, done a lot of bad things. But uh, so I wasn't mad that they gave him the money. I'm just mad that they paid off a political regime. Like that is not your job if you're a publisher. You're supposed to be brave. Um, but By you know, the way, I, I mean, the, the publishing world was also giving, what, $5 million to now disgraced former, I didn't know it till yesterday, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo for a book in the middle of a pandemic. You missed all that? I, can't. I missed all that. <laughs> man, it was a good month, off, man. man. It was a good month. You know, it's so funny is, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. August was always, like, I haven't taken a single day off in August. And that was always the time where, you know, I would always go on a fishing trip or whatever, or, you know, go to Europe or do, because it's August, nothing happens. We, that it's was not the hallway it. month. We make up stories. <laughs> but all of a sudden, it's like you go away for August and you missed a ton. Yeah. Well, actually, speaking of that, and then we'll, we'll let's just do one more August related thing then, and then we'll, we'll get back to the book. The, the, the Afghanistan stuff, obviously, I have to ask you a, a little bit about that because I'm just catching up on it literally in the last 24 hours. Um, it's sort of, from my perspective, impossible to tell exactly what happened from, from a media perspective because it seems like they really are trying to figure out a way not to blame the administration, but this thing seems like as bad a bungling as, could, could, it, could it have been worse at this point? Like what, what could have made this worse, this exit and now everything that's happening? I don't, I can't see it. And I say that as someone who was passionately, passionately in favor of withdrawing troops because yeah. I, I didn't see the point. No one could ever explain what the mission was. And that's just a violation of my most basic rule of life, which is know why you're doing something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, especially yeah. if people are dying and you're spending trillions to do it, what is it? And no one could answer. So I was totally for pulling out. But to in order of severity, leave American citizens behind, move tens of thousands of unvetted Afghans who did not work for the US military, who aren't our allies, whose identities we don't know, into suburban America, and then three, to leave behind $90 billion worth of military equipment, an entire air force, 360,000 automatic battle rifles, heavy machine guns, Blackhawks, fixed wing. I mean, it, it, it's the Taliban now control the best armed military of its size in the world. It, it's unimaginable. So, it's, unima it's unbelievable. And then, then you start learning. And I felt I was pretty well versed on Afghanistan. I mean, I first went over there in October of 2001 because I was a working journalist and that, you know, that was my job. So I've sort of paid attention to Afghanistan for 20 years, not, not as deeply as I thought I was, however, because we learn all these things. was like, is that really, was that really happening? The president of Afghanistan left the country without telling anyone. And some of his aides who were at lunch got back to the office and he was gone. He was on a flight to Tajikistan with tens of millions of US currency. What, how did that happen? Who was this guy? Turns out we installed as the president of Afghanistan a professor from Johns Hopkins who, like, is the last person. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just tells you everything about our, our ruling class, which is they only 
talk to, believe, trust, promote people exactly like them. If you are, I don't think you speak Dari or Pashto, I'm assuming. But if I said, Dave Rubin, your job is to pick a leader of Afghanistan, you'd probably pick some pretty tough Pashtun warlord type who could make the provinces obey if you wanted a central government, right? He probably, probably wouldn't have gone to John Hopkins. How about that? <laughs> right? So then it turns out that this guy's dog, he's got two kids, both with American passports. One is a, and I'm quoting, visual artist in Brooklyn. And the other was a staffer for Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. And you're like, wait a second. Afghanistan, the poorest country in the world on the other side, you know, South Asia, other side of the globe, we pick a leader who is exactly like our leaders. And that's how you know that it's all about narcissism. Like it's only about self-love, self-worship. Like these people are incompetent because they're narcissists. Like they can't imagine that anybody but a Johns Hopkins professor of some like totally douchey discipline too, like social science. He's not <laughs> even like a math professor. He's not like even a real professor. And right. you made him president of Afghanistan? Because I think it was, it was I think it was lesbian dance theory. If I'm, I'll have to I'll have to check that, but I, I think yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but but how bad do you? I mean, like how bad do you think this will be? I mean, it's, it seems to me this is almost the type of thing if we had an honest media that could actually topple administration. Like this this seems like and now the phone call where Biden basically was in advance trying to cover the whole thing up about how bad things had gotten there. Like this seems extraordinarily awful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of those moments and there are, you know, usually things change incrementally in a way that's only barely perceptible and you wake yeah. up and everything's different. Not, you know, 2015, the middle class became the minority of the American population. No one really noticed. Six years later, it's like pretty obvious, okay, that we live in Brazil. This is one of those rare moments where the pivot point is like right in your face. It's crisp, it's dramatic, it's on television. Like, you know that nothing will be the same after this. You're just not exactly sure in what way it'll be different. But the obvious the obvious effects, of course, were just a, a radical diminishment of American power. You know, it's pretty clear the United States can't actually enforce its will, even on yeah. this stone each country. It can't make anybody do what it wants them to do. It won't protect people it says it will protect. It can't even protect its own citizens because it doesn't even try. The people in charge are dumb. They don't know they're dumb. They have no actual skills. They're totally unaware of that. Like it's just, it's ripped the mask off. And I, I'm not personally smart enough to figure out all the ramifications of this, but they are absolutely profound. And you're gonna see an acceleration of, of trends already in progress, which is like none of the 340 million people who live here really think the people in charge have any clue what they're doing. Nobody really believes the system is real. Nobody actually thinks we live in a representative democracy. Nobody really believes in American empire. Like it just makes everybody totally cynical, totally atomized. There is no kind of center of gravity in America. Like what it, what, right? This is bad, man. I think it's really, really bad. Is that the most dangerous place that a country can be, that it only works if we believe that it works? And we yes. sort of, it feels like yes. we're in the show must go on version of democracy. Like, yes. like oh, it's just gotta go on because it's gotta go on, even though the president probably has dementia, nobody's listening to anybody, right. we're, we're unearthing and, and upending everything we ever believed in, but we gotta keep the show going. But everything works that way. I mean, everything, I mean, there's a huge corpus of literature on you know, the effective attitude on health. You know, there are yeah. there are cases, not a few, 
many cases that are documented in the medical literature of people who got better because they like decided to. <laughs> so yeah. like, yeah. you know, mind over matter, that's a real thing. How you feel about something, and, and the opposite is also true. Anxiety can give you cancer, like terminal cancer. So how you feel about something determines what that thing is. And in, in the case of like a, a huge, incredibly complex project, like running a country this big, it's determinative. It makes all the difference. Like if people believe in it, it works. If they don't, it doesn't. And I'm just amazed. There are a lot of reasons why no one believes in the system anymore, but I'm just amazed by the recklessness of a ruling class that sets out intentionally to destroy, say, patriotism. And then what do you replace it with? Right. We right. haven't replaced it with anything. So like we kneel for the anthem. Okay. What's your idea? You know, we don't have a, a racial majority, a religious majority, increasingly not even a meaningful linguistic majority. Like, what is it that holds the country together? What do we all have in common? You know, countries don't hang together by accident. You know, centrifugal force is a, is a physics principle. Like, it'll, it breaks apart unless there's a reason for it to hold together, period. So what's ours? And the idea that they would systematically go through and, like, destroy the, the, the last remaining connective tissue between hundreds of millions of Americans, professional sports. Well, we're all into football. Not anymore. Not anymore. Not That's anymore. a political category now. You know, we're all, we all believe in the military. Not anymore. They're lecturing us about white rage. Oh shit. I'm white. I guess I'm excluded from this. I mean, like, well, who thought of this? This is the single craziest thing our ruling class has done has been thematic. And the theme is destroy the connection between Americans. It, it's so interesting you're saying that because since I just caught up on the Afghanistan thing, as I'm trying to piece it all together in a short amount of time, it feels to me almost like it's intentionally horrible. It, it, yes. it, like if you were intentionally trying to not only destroy Afghanistan, but destroy our credibility, make us look like fools, make it look like no one's in charge, could you do it any better than you did? No, no, you couldn't. It actually just, it breaks, it breaks my heart and you know, I, I don't know the answer. And I've asked a lot of really smart people who know, you know, much more about how the military works than I do. And some of them have recently been in Afghanistan. Um, I probably asked five or six people like that, everyone I know like that in the last week. This looks intentional to me. This looks like vandalism. This doesn't look like an accident. Yeah. And all of them have said, you know, I'm not sure, but I think they really are that dumb. Gosh, what, I, I that, that's All even I, scarier. Yeah. It, well, it is scarier, but but you also think like motive may not even matter as much as effect. I mean, mm -hmm. the message, of course, to China, and I mean, everybody I know had the same. I wish you had been you were in, you know, in your treehouse when this happened. But <laughs> the moment that Kabul fell, I must have gotten five texts from smart people I know who had the exact same reaction, which is, man, if I lived in Taipei, I'd be I'd be offshoring my money right now and buying a condo in Santa Monica. Like everybody had the same reaction. Taiwan is just screwed. And I think that's true. Um, but that's just a small piece of the effect of this. I mean, rarely do empires short of like full defeat in a war. And as abruptly as ours just did, like, we're done. So what does that mean for us? I mean, in some ways, I never thought we were served by the American empire, especially. I don't know how much we've gotten out of Puerto Rico and Guam and Afghanistan and all these other colonies that we call mm -hmm. other things, but our colonies. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think it's been good for us, actually. But it has been, I would say, on par good for the world. 
And I don't really know if you can be as powerful as we are or thought we were without having an empire. Is that even possible? I don't know. Maybe empire is just an inevitable stage once you re- get as rich as we have. I, you know, I, these are all too deep for me. But I do know we're about to see massive change. Yeah, and then there's the, you know, Rome was an empire too. All right, let's, I know you got to get back to that little, you know, highest rated cable, whatever thing you got there <laughs> tonight. But I want to give you one chance to, do, is there one particular essay in here that you think would be like particularly poignant that we could just hit on for just a couple minutes? Well, there's only one poignant essay in there and, and it was, it's the last one in the book and it was a piece I, I've gone to this, well, I'll just say it, I live there now, um, the same house my whole life in Maine and um, and my kids, my four kids grew up there. And maybe 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, every September we'd go back to Washington. We spent the whole summer there. And uh, and of course still do. And uh, But I, you know, put all the kids in the truck and drive them home with the dogs and everything. It was always very sad. You know, it's, it was always sad. Summer's over, you know. And one year I wrote an essay about it, um, probably around 2000, about how nothing in Maine ever changes. Like it's the house that I grew up in, that my kids grew up in and, you know, nothing changes. Like there are things on the shelf that I put there in fifth grade, you know, I mean, it's just like, it doesn't change, but we change. And against its unchanging nature, we see our own changes. And, um, it was funny just this morning. So I write about in there, a, a workshop, a shed that we have, it's been built in the 1890s. And it's just like, it was a coal shed. It has a workshop because things break and I fix them or whatever. And there are uh, shelves along one wall. And my kids, when they were really little, my oldest is tw- almost 27, they would put like little things that they found, weird colored rocks or like a rusty anchor they found at the bottom of the water or whatever, you know, broken fishing lures. And they put them there as children. That This was their treasure. And this morning I was in there fixing a line, a rope from a boat, melting the ends of nylon boat line. And I looked over and there's a rusty anchor that my almost 27 year old daughter put there when she was like five. Oh. <laughs> I just felt, you know, I, it'll be there, you know, when I'm gone and I, it'll probably be there. Her grandchildren will see it. I don't know. There's something, it's funny how much we change without perceiving it, but to have one constant in your life against which you can measure that change is, is, is really interesting and, and sad. Tucker, I think you've proven the impossible that guys on cable news are also human beings. It's, it's wild. <laughs> I'm trying, man. It's not easy. <laughs> we're we're going to link to the book down below, of course, and uh, I hope I get to see it not through these pipes sometime soon, although I suspect I'm going to have to make it out to Maine before you make it out to L.A. <laughs> That's definitely true. <laughs> see you, man. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in everybody. Be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast. And don't forget you can watch my direct messages live on Blaze TV and YouTube every weekday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And of course, if you want to connect with me personally and get early access to my sit-down interviews, join rubinreport.locals.com.